Devotion. It is what was Paul's thorn in his flesh? And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh the messenger of satan to buffer me lest i sh should be exalted above measure second corinthians 12 and 7. In 2 Corinthians 12 and 7, the Apostle Paul writes that he had been given a thorn in the flesh because of the abundance of the revelations he had received. Today, I want us to discover the identity of this thorn in the flesh and where it came from did it come from God as some excerpt or was this thorn personally sent from Satan to implead Paul from making an even greater impact with his ministry let's begin looking for the answer to this question by carefully examining Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12 and 7. He writes, unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, the word exalted above measure means over, above, and beyond. It depicts something that is way beyond measure and conveys the idea that something that is greater, superior, higher, better, more than a match for the utmost. It could also describe something that is first rate, first class, top notch, surpass. When these two Greek words are compounded, it forms the word hapio. It means it speaks of a person who has been supremely exalted. This is a person who has been magnified, increased, and lifted up to a place of great prestige and influence although 
could be used to express the idea of a person who has haltedly exalted himself. This is not the idea Paul has in mind when he writes this verse. Rather, this is a person who has been greatly honored and recognized due to something he has written, done, or achieved. Notice that Paul refers to the abundance of revelations that God has given him. The word abundance. Meaning phenomenal, extraordinary. Now Paul uses this word to explain that the revelation he had received were not only unparalleled in quality, but the vast number of them were far beyond what anyone else had ever received. It refers to something that has been built, hidden for a long time. And then suddenly, almost instantaneously, instantaneously becomes clear and visible to the mind or the eye. It is like pulling the curtain out of the way so you can see what has been just outside your window. The scene was always there for you to enjoy, but the curtain blocked, your, blocked the ability to see the real picture. When the curtain are drawn apart, you can suddenly see what has been hidden from your view. The moment you see beyond the curtain, for the first time and observe what has been there all along but not evident to you that's what the Bible called revelation from Paul's words in 2nd Corinthians 12 and 7 we know that the curtain had been pulled apart and Paul has seen the spiritual realm on many occasions. He'd had an abundance of things, of, of experiences. It was this abundance of revelation that Paul was preaching as he Traverse the traveled the religious surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. Everywhere he went, he preached what he had divinely that was divinely revealed to him. He preached his power of authority. And fame grew greater and greater as his revelation, his boldness preached them. Paul was questionably becoming one of the most influential person men of the other day. Now 
Paul let us know that Satan was alarmed by the great progress the apostle was making with the gospel. Therefore, the enemy launched a full-scale attack to impede what progress Satan didn't want Paul to recognize and magnify to the great extent that he was already was. Instead, the devil wanted to pour down this man of God, to ruin him, to destroy him, and to discredit the message he preached since there was no moral fall in Paul that Satan could use to destroy him he inflicted Paul with a thorn in his flesh the word thorn in the Greek word skepo is a word used to describe dangerous sharp spike instrument or tool however this word was also used to describe the stake on which an enemy's head was stuck after was struck after being decapitated One thing is clear. However, Satan wanted Paul's head on the stake. He wanted to eliminate this man of God and put him completely out of the picture. Instead of referring to sickness, the words, the words, of Apostle Paul mostly describe type of event that was constant source of irritation irritation to the Apostle Paul. This event caused him personal distress and kept reoccurring over and over again for this reason he referred to it as a thorn in his flesh some argue that God sent this thorn in the flesh to keep Paul being from being prideful about his many revelations but there's no reason to debate this issue for Paul plainly wrote that it was a messenger of Satan to buffer me. The word messenger in Greek word is Anglingo. Angelo. A word that was described as an angel one who was sent with special on a special mission a messenger who was dispatched from satan to buffer paul to restrict the progress of his ministry the thorn in the flesh categorically did not come from god otherwise paul would have called it the messenger of God. Paul himself plainly stated that the thorn in the flesh was given to him by a messenger of Satan, a special force that had been dispatched to keep Paul from gaining additional status, 
prestige and to prevent him from taking the gospel further, higher into the world's scene. Look at the fact that Paul was preaching to kings, governors, world leaders. He was establishing churches, writing New Testament scriptures, pushing back the force of hell. The personal influence was growing and his impact was increasing day by day. The revelation that God has given him were about to change the course of human history. Fearing that Paul's influence would grow too great. Satan strategically sent forces who had been instructed to create disturbance to buffer the apostle. Today is February 21st, 2023. You see, Paul's story in the flesh was in sickness, epilepsy, or any other physical it was the people who opposed and irritated him and continually caused him problems. The devil used these people again and again, trying to keep Paul so distracted, solving people's problems, that he wouldn't be able to make any significant personal gospel advancement. Paul endured many afflictions during his ministry. Many of the afflictions he faced were due to religious leaders who fiercely opposed him. These religious leaders included Jewish leaders who hated him and his message. They also included false brethren who were constantly trying to displace his position and authority to the local churches. Paul was resisted outside the church by leaders of the Jewish faith who hated him. He was also opposed from within the church by those who wanted him out the picture. They could take his place of prominence. Thus the biggest thorn in Paul's life was the fact that he had to deal with these different groups of people who covertly planned the problems, hassles he frequently faced in ministry. A special messenger from Satan, perhaps even a demonic angel, had been sent to incite these people against Paul. If you survey the type of ordeals Paul endured, you will see many of them were orchestrated by these people who wanted to get rid of him. They were so determined Good evening.
Hey man, this is February the 23rd, 2023, with Evangelist Lazel Spencer, which I am thankful. Hey man, tonight is I am thankful. God is so great. And we're going to talk about Judah. We're going to talk about we know that we should have a sense of humor too. I'm just going to just talk at this time. Just Judah shamed and out gained by Tamar. Judah was one of Jacob's later named Israel's sons. As you may recall, Israel had two wives, Leah and Rachel, and his wives had mistresses who also bore Jacob children, 12 sons in all. Judah was conceived from Jacob and Leah's union. And the terms Jew and Jewish derive from the moniker Judah. To provide some helpful context in this story, Judah and his three sons lived in the land of Canaan, which is the same place his descendants migrated to during the Exodus. It was only after the Exodus did the region of Canaan become known as Israel because the Israelites expelled the previous inhabitants and the southern part of Israel was called the territory of Judah. Judah's two oldest sons, Ur and Onan, at different times both married Tamar and both died, leaving her twice widowed. Ur and Onan did evil things God did not like, so they were killed. Judah had one son left who was still a child named Shelah. Shelah. Judah promised Tamar he would let Shelah marry her once he was of age since both of her husbands had died. My sincerest apologies are expressed to you at this point because as confusing as all this sound, it is going to get a little more confusing. But I promise you, I'm going to get, uh, it's going to get a little more confusing. But I promise you, I'm about to land this plane. Right now, you see, as it turned out, it was a tradition for the surviving brother to turn out. As it turned out, was to marry the deceased brother's widow in order to carry on the deceased brother's name. This custom called the Liberates, the Librates, marriage customs, was not handed down by God at this point in time. Further baffling, the Librates marriage tradition sounds very synopsis, synonymous to the set to the name of Judah's brother Levi in which many Jewish laws are classified under 
For example, the Levitical priest, the Levitical law, and the book of the Leviticus are all derived from Jacob, Israel's son, Levi. Moses, Aaron were descendants of Levi. One can easily misconstrue the Levites' marriage as a spinoff of something originating from Levi. But here is where my mind twists into a pretzel. How in the world can you pass down an ancient tradition or custom while the person for which it is named is still alive? My mind was blown to smithereens for nearly three minutes until I Google Libra Breaks Customs. L-E-I-L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E Customs and found out the real truth. Fret not, our biblical knowledge is still intact. The word Levirate in Latin means husband, brother, and has zero to do with Judas' brother Levi. In fact, at this chronological point in the Bible, Jacob, Israel was alive and well. So the promises God made to him had yet to be fulfilled because his descendants did not exist. This means there was no Moses, no Exodus, and no Mosaic law. A law similar to the Levirate's custom became God's sovereign word later on in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 and 6. Whee! Had I not researched this fun factor, you would not be reading this book because I would have had no mind. I would have had no mind of this. Oh my God. Talk about crisis alert, avert, averted. Hopefully you are still with me and we can now get back to what is called spilling the tea or sharing some, some, some news about Judah and Tamar. See what had happened was once the older brother Ur died, Judah <clears throat> made his other son Onan marry Tamar to carry on his brother's Ur, <clears throat> Ur lineage. Onan probably didn't want to do it, but was obedient to his father, Judah. Onan tried to circumvent his order by sabotaging his effort to impregnate Tamar. He knew their firstborn son would technically be Brother Earth's child or Onan's nephew's son and not his firstborn son. Onan deceitfully ejaculated outside of Tamar's body so he would not get her pregnant. Since Onan did not do what was right, he was also killed. And therefore, Tamar was twice a widow. After Onan's death, Judah told Tamar to remain a widow and stay with her father until his son, Shelah, S-H-E-L-A-H, was grown. Here lies the problem 
with just Judah. He was a stickler for rules, fairness and appearances. But in this matter, Judah was insincere, telling Tamar to remain a widow. Genesis 38 and 11 sound as if Tamar was at a liberty, was at liberty to remarry if she chose. In other words, Judah was saying, don't get married. Wait for my son, Sheila, to become an adult and marry him. If Tamar had a choice, Judah telling her those specific instructions bound him to an oath to follow through on his promise. Judah may have meant well, but he took Tamar's option away from her giving her false hope of another husband in the future. Had Judah been honest, or better yet, bade her a heartfelt farewell, Tamar could have decided to remarry another man and wait for Sheila at that point. She probably felt obliged to marry her dead husband's brother. She never asked Judah to marry Sheila, S-H-E-L-A-H. Furthermore, Judah never intended to let his last son marry her because in his mind, he felt Sheila might die too if he married Tamar as if she was a curse. Tamar probably thought his family was the accursed. Unquestionably, the cursed sentiment went both ways. Just reading this story about Tamar and what she had to go through and Judah, and I was wondering if this lady I went to church with, if she had read this story before. It's very interesting because she made a statement similar to this. She said when she graduated from high school, her and her friends was talking about whether they're going to college or going to work or were they going to get married. And somebody asked her, was she going to get married? She said, now at age 18, she said, my husband hasn't been born yet. And when she made that statement, I looked at her like, you said what? Because I'm thinking, I know at 18, I wasn't thinking. I wasn't looking at no baby thinking, is this going to be the what going to be my, you know, you see baby boys and you see them playing outside and growing up and you watching your possible child. I mean, that seems kind of demonic and creepy. Because Judah never intended to give Tamar his last precious son. He felt feeding Tamar excuses as to why Sheila, and I know I'm not pronouncing this name right, was not making his way, was not making his way over to marry her. Meanwhile, Tamar's ovaries were not getting any younger. And Judah's inconsiderate, inconsiderate fear may have cost her precious offsprings, barrenness, and pre preconception, preceptions of it. She was a very real fear for a lot of women in the biblical times. 
A woman's social appearance and household was determined by her fertilization or lack thereof. Uh-oh, that's right. Octomar would have been the president. Hmm. I'm not even going to say that one. Tamar was shunned and judged by other women, especially those with a gaggle of kids. See, so you shouldn't judge someone. You don't know the inside story. Once Sheila had grown up, Judah had not kept in touch Tamar realized he was stringing her along. So she made up her mind to take control of her own fate. Her fertilization, her fertility, determined not to let anyone stop her from having a baby. Not even her slick-talking father-in-law. Tamar devised a foolproof plan to get exactly what she wanted. During this time period in, of the Bible, men would go sheep shearing, which is an occasion of festivity. Typically, there's a type of shenanigans typically observed during the bike week in Myrtle Beach, spring break in Miami Beach. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. If you don't know what goes on, what goes down during these trips, let's just say men and women are not always on their best behavior. Tamar was informed by someone in the know that Judah was about to go to town of Timah and get his sheep shearing party on. Add to it, to it the fact that Judah's wife had recently passed and he was now out of mourning period. And all the signs indicated that Judah was about to be a wild buck, was, was about to get buck wild. Calculating, Tamar devised an ingenious plan to trap Judah and get the results what she had wanted from the get-go, a baby. She disguised herself and wore a veil over her face, resembling a prostitute, and waited at a location on the road, headed to Tenema, strutting by with his freaky fag, with, with his freaky flag flying, his freak fag flag fat flying, Judah fell right into Tamar's trap. At the sign of this mysterious lady, Marmalade, he propositioned her for her services. But Judah had no idea he was about to get busy with his own daughter-in-law. Pretty sneaky. Tamar was pretty sneaky. Not only was Tamar playing a shrewd game of chess, she was, though, because she wouldn't, because she would let the old man, mm, romp with her, Tamar asked him, what he would give her for her first time. 
fast-talking Judah had nothing to offer but a promise to send her a young goat from his flock. First of all, his word was unreliable, as we already grasped regarding Shiloh. Tamar realized she would need bearable or verifiable evidence of his lustful discretion, or Judah will undoubtedly go back on his word. So she asked for and took his seal and cord and staff and kept as insurance. She knew this would force him to make good on that young goat he promised because his confiscated items were personal and distinctive. They were attesting as having Judah sheep herder United ID card. It's just like having fingerprints or his DNA sample. Speaking of DNA, Tamar conceived during that night of legally binding passion. Tamar was really with was 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 going through with her scheming without even using an ovulation prediction kit she calculated precisely when she would be ovulating now that's pure talent right there tamar was a bad mama jama after their encounter Tamar returned to her normal life, assuming wearing her widow clothing. How sad. How sad was it? She was still wearing her mourning clothes, all because the jerk because he jerked her around. All because of jerk around Judah was holding his phantom carrot in her eyes. Just like his daddy Jacob, Judah was a deceiver and a trickster. The apple didn't fall far from the tree. And we know that Jacob got it from his mama and his uncle. It was a family generational affair. Mm. Tamar but rest assured Tamar had the the last hearty ha-ha because we went we get to how things righteously unfold I want to give Judah credit for trying to sin the promised goat to Tamar. Judah asked his friend, Aldumamite, to take the goat to the prostitute who reps the road at Enon. Judah wisely wanted his incriminating stuff back. Of course, he never finds the prostitute because she was not an actual prostitute selling her goods up and down the streets in Tenement. Tamar was a woman on a mission to reclaim her blessing. Within three months, Tamar little bambino bump started showing. When word got back, To Judah, 
that his ever mourning daughter-in-law was a prostitute and pregnant, instantly, without hesitation, he sentenced her to death by insurrection. What the what? Judah was a patron of the prostitute. A custom call girl. Yet, he seriously judged her. Yep, Judah's smudged self-righteous face was next to the word. Male chauvinist pig and hypocrite in the first manuscript of the Hebrew Bible dictionary. This is just some just some said. As Judah eagerly served Tamar her death warrant, Tamar figure, figuratively threw a monkey wrench at Judah's smeared head. When she said, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. Come on now. And while looking at him side-eyed, she said, let me know if you recognize any of these items. She handed Judah the seal and the cord and the staff. You can find that in Genesis 38 and 25. Game always recognized game. And Judah had no choice but to concede to Tamar. Was more righteous than him. She had foolishly and thoughtlessly played mind games with her regarding, regarding his son Shelah. And now Tamar was not only with child, she was pregnant with twins. Woo-wee! Tamar was whining and tw twinning. <laughs> she was winning, winning and twinning. Ultimately, Tamar gave birth to two healthy baby boys. During the delivery, the midwife tied a scarlet cord around the wrist of the first baby and stuck his hand out of the birth that that they stuck his hand out of the birth canal but when he drew it back in the other baby made his escape before his brother could make it out the one that broke out first was named Perez and the other one with the scarlet cord on his wrist was named Zora. The final hardy har was turned out. Perez was one, was none other than the ancestor of our Lord Savior, Jesus Christ. This further illustrates how Tamar was almost denied the fulfillment of her dream because of know-it-all pumped up patriarch was ultimately the martyr of the Messiah. One lesson learned here is don't get anyone, don't let anyone come between you and your dream because God's got Big plans for you if you're bold enough to take it. Another lesson is when our hearts are in the right place, God can always make a miracle out of our messes. Judah's heart was in the right place when he obligated his two sons to marry their dead brother's widow. Although Judah meant no harm and tried to do what he felt was the right thing, in this matter, it only made things worse. 
But that doesn't mean we shouldn't do the right thing in life's sticky, tricky situation. Where there is no malice or ill, ill will, God will make our crooked path straight. In a different Bible story, had it not been for just Judah, his younger brother Joseph would have been killed at the hand of his jealous brother, Egypt. Egypt would have never stockpiled nation and the great famine would have wiped out countless lives. But Judah did what he always tried to do, the right thing. He interpreted his brother's murderous plan. He interrupted his brother's murderous plan and spared Joseph's life. Joseph, we been we was talking about that at our last Women's Day. Joseph went on to save many lives. And the reason for the great Exodus.